The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning and welcome back to a to a special Valentine's Day edition of the School of Creative Arts Researchers Forum. We are joined today with Dr. Simon Trezise. Uh, he is a retired associate professor of the music department at Trinity College Dublin, and he has authored uh, dozens of articles, book chapters, and edited collections on music, sound, and technology, including the Cambridge Companion to French Music, the Cambridge Companion to Debussy, and the forthcoming Debussy and Context. He is also co-editor, along with Professor Ruth Barton, of the 2019 collection of essays, Music and Sound in Silent Film, From the Nickelodeon to the Artist, as part of the Rutledge Music and Screen Media series. My name is Scotty McQueen. I'm co-convening the SCARF Forum, along with Courtney Helen Greil. And today, uh, Dr. Trezais is going to talk to us about historically uh, informed performance vocal music of the late Baroque, and some thoughts on the employment of female musicians. Before we begin, I'd also like to invite you next week to join us, same time, same place, for uh, Dr. Blahin Duggan's presentation entitled, I Second That Emotion, Modifiers as Expressive Devices in Early Motown. For now, uh, I will turn things over to Dr. Trezais. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Scotty. Uh, I've just shared my screen. <laughs> I'm sure you'll tell me if, if uh, I've done anything wrong and you can't hear the music. Uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to, to talk to you. Most of my research is in the late 19th century and early 20th century, particularly into the music of Wagner, Elgar and Debussy, but I've given myself this paper as a sort of retirement present and I've gone back a hundred years into the Baroque period, the time of Bach and Handel, and I hope that you will bear with me because these are the thoughts of a, a non-specialist uh, and, and they are a little bit uh, impertinent given the amount of work that's been done in this area, uh, but I couldn't help myself. Uh, the historical performance movement that I'm talking about goes back many years and it could have its roots in the 19th century. Um, it really got going in the 1960s when a surprising wedding took place. One might have expected a rather cerebral set of performers backed by musicological scholarship to have limited appeal. They spoke of respecting the composer's intentions um, by, um, for example, um, going back to the purest texts, uh, using um, the uh, instruments of the period of the music played, and they comb through treatises to, to find out about performing conventions and so on. They swept away. Uh, now, unfortunately, being on Zoom, you can't see all my scare quotes, but this subject is absolutely laden with them. And, and so I will do a little scare quote, quote every so often, but you may not see it. So, so they are in the text, but um, anyway swept away encrusted layers of tradition, um, often using the analogy of the, the restoration of the painting, where you clear away the varnish and all the accretions to reveal the original 
in its full glory. The, the 1960s were good ones for the classical record industry, however, and um, it had a large discerning audience, lots of money, and uh, collectors of LPs and tapes were delighted to have fresh light thrown on familiar masterpieces by historical performers. More than that, they even welcomed more adventurous forays into unfamiliar repertoire. Historical performance became big business with some records selling hundreds of thousands. And music is a business, no matter how idealistic the cultural context. Choral conductors who might have expected to remain relatively impoverished in the choir stalls and never make it onto the concert stage found themselves pictured on the front covers of LPs and later CDs. Singers with modest scaled voices uh, found they work very well in the different sound world of historical performance. And a number of men, who we'll have occasion to talk about later, discovered that although their voices were nothing special in their usual male modal registers, like tenor, uh, by singing mostly falsetto, they might even end up on the stage of La Scala, as this one did. I use um, the, the, the term historically informed performance, but originally they were using the word authentic. And uh, Taruskin, among others, really objected to the use of the word authentic, uh, seemed to be the wrong word and made a claim which it was very hard to stand over. Because if you think about it, a performance by, th by 3,000 singers, an orchestra to match, an absolutely invested audience, uh, a performance of Messiah on, in these terms uh, could be the most authentic imaginable event. This is 1926 um, Crystal Palace uh, performance of the Messiah. Of the many thousands of documents from which one may choose, I've taken a brilliant exposition of the aims of historical performance by one of the prophets of the movement, uh, Nicolas Harmancourt. The text appears in the liner notes of his pioneering recording of Bach's St. John Passion with original instruments. And if you, I don't know if you can see it, but the, the original cover is on the left and it says Esther Schallplatten Produktion, uh, first uh, original, in, first uh, recording in, in the original edition uh, with original instruments. So it made a great play and, and the, the edition's called Das Alte Werk as well. So it's sort of very encrusted with its new mission. Uh, the records, therefore, were accompanied by a detailed appeal to the authority of what was being done. Uh, such a thing would be very rare in traditional performance or mainstream performance of the type that you might hear at the National Concert Hall every Friday with a, the symphony orchestra. Uh, in historical performance authority was invested in realizing the composer's intentions. And we all know about the intentional fallacy and the problem of intentions. I'm not going to get into that because it's it's been very, very well uh, discussed and, and there's so much one can say about uh, the this, this idea of the composer's intentions. 
So, so they use original instruments, of course, the best text and, and so on. And the investment of authority is very important here, for we are no longer just looking doubtfully at Hahn and Co. if we dislike the performance. He has an arsenal of apparently very good reasons for his performance decisions. In his essay, he writes this, um, the wish to hear old music in an unedited form as close to the original as possible sets off a chain reaction. Uh, bracket tempo, tempi, numbers of performers, acoustics of halls, sound and sound blending of the instruments, which cannot be halted. And at the end of which stands a performance corresponding to the circumstances of the time of the composition in every respect. Of course, we can never know. So there it is anyway, the, the idealistic proclamation of authenticity, the historically informed performer resounding. For all Hanenko and others' efforts, it is astonishing how little we know about the performance of Bach's music in his lifetime. Unlike Handel, who was a businessman putting on music for paying public in public spaces in London, the world's richest city, Bach worked for the city of Leipzig. Um, in the last third of his life, organizing music for four churches and using mostly boys and young men from the school of St. Thomas's. Whether the performances he organized each week over many years were good or not is something we just don't know. We're just not privy to this information. Uh, I think they must have been good because Bart was a superlative all-round musician. Um, and Harnoncourt certainly believes this to be so because he writes, um, it can be assumed that the group of pupils at St. Thomas's whom Bart drew upon for the larger and more difficult tasks had been formed by him into a first-class instrument that could realize his intentions to a high degree. And Harnoncourt needs this to be so uh, because the ideal performance for the historical performance movement uh, corresponds to the first or an early performance, which is one that took place with the full authority and input of the composer at a time when the stylistic parameters of the music were contemporary and therefore entirely understood. In other words, performance didn't have to think about stylistic conventions because they already knew them. The performers would have been male, for no women were permitted to perform in Lutheran churches at this time, and the pupils of the school were male. Harnoncourt, therefore, in his pursuit of historical uh, uh, reality, therefore used an all-male chorus with boy sopranos and boy altos in the choir and the solos. Men with established singing careers, often distinguished ones, sing the tenor and bass solos. Um, though Bach presumably had to use whoever was available in his limited Leipzig uh, catchment area. Uh, the orchestra Hahnenklau uh, uses includes women because he's not excluding women on principle, simply excluding women to achieve what he thought was Bach's sound world. Uh, I've got a little bit of video of Hahnenklau conducting um, this same St. John Passion. This was made 20 years later, but the forces used are pretty much the same as he used in the 1965 recording. Uh, so it gives you a good taste of, taste of it. And you can also see what he's doing.
there's plenty more of that. Um, these images from traditional performances offer an interesting parallel to one crucial aspect of this performance. And you see these men are doing pretty much the same as Harmoncourt's doing. In other words, directing a performance from the front. You can even see it in the middle photograph as Toscanini on the left. I don't know if you can see Carrion on the right because I can't, but, but uh, he's there anyway, Fertwinger in the middle and a few more conductors coming up to the present day with Simon Rattle, bottom right. Uh, women do get occasional look in, but very occasional, um, very interesting figure, Nadia Boulanger on the left, who is also conducting early music, but this is early in the 20th century, so completely out of, of the central um, development of music in the 20th century. And then on the right, there's the contemporary conductor, Marion also. But if we look at historically informed performance, these are all exponents of what we call historically informed performance or HIP, H-I-P, Harnenkohl, top left, Minkowski, top right, Herrewege, bottom left, um, Koopman, bottom right, all conducting from the front. And in this respect uh, of crucial aspect of performance conducting, uh, in which power and money are concentrated, they command the highest salaries, Hanan Kaur is not quite so historically informed, or he chooses not to be. If we, um, very little has changed, but Bach might have rehearsed his forces, he certainly did, but he preferred to play during performances. Uh, sometimes there was a time beater, which you can see in this picture here, standing next to the organ, a relatively menial uh, task, just raising and lowering the parchment or parchments to, to mark out the, the beat, but not doing all the subtle things that Harnoncourt was doing, like uh, calling for that sudden quiet uh, quietness from the orchestra, and, uh, orchestra just before the entry of the choir, um, nothing like that. Um, we don't know exactly what Bach did at his cantata and other performances, but he presu presumably played harpsichord um, or, or the organ uh, at these performances. Handel rejected the, the um, time-beating approach and he preferred to manage the performance from a, a, a keyboard. However, the modern conductor, as represented by all those pictures and the video, didn't come into general use in, until the 19th century, so its use here is an anachronism. There is a lot more wrong with what we see of ha what Harnoncourt is doing, and I don't really want to get uh, drawn into the question of how many performers Bach used, or Handel for that matter, because this is highly contentious. And, and it, um, on the left, you can see the, the choir of St. Thomas's uh, performing in a typical way, performing Bach in a typical way. So this is Bach's institution on the left, and you can see a very large number of boys performing. But the picture on the right um, uh, shows a, an 18th century performance. They're not as far as one can tell of a, a religious work, uh, in which uh, there are only four or five, depends what the guy in the middle is doing, four or five singers standing at the front on the gallery with the orchestra behind them. And as you can see, the orchestra is about three times the size of uh, the chorus, and the chorus comprises any four or five 
people. Uh, this appears to be a secular event, possibly later in the 18th century, because there are two women singing as well. Um, or it could could be, uh, uh, it's a, probably not a religious event, judging by the hall. And this is probably the size of the choir that Bach used, um, four boys. And, and uh, Hanenkohl's positioning, which you can see in that top left photograph, is anachronistic as well, because the, the uh, choir uh, would be as close as possible to the front of the, the gallery, probably with its back to, to, the, the, uh, in, to the accompaniment. And the instruments would either be off to the side or behind it. Uh, but again, Han and Koran, most um, uh, exponents of the historically informed performance movement uh, opt to, to use what is a mainstream placement with the conductor, the, the center of control. There is an interesting, uh, there has been interesting work done on what Handel did in London, um, and he used a super uh, techno technological wonder of the 18th century, um, which no longer exists, we don't know how he did it exactly, but enabled uh, um, the same keyboard or the same position to control both an organ, which was remote, um, so it had a long action, an organ, and he, a harpsichord, so he played the harpsichord during the solos and, and he led the, the choir from the organ uh, and he didn't have to change his seat. Um, and uh, it, it seems quite likely that he delayed performances in Dublin uh, until just such an instrument could be shipped from London for this purpose. However, um, Hanukkah's decision to use all male singers is based on the historical reality of Leipzig in the first half of the 18th century. But even in that city, um, musicians were beginning to perceive a considerable advantage to using female voices, for, for they were more easily uh, controlled. The boys could be very wayward. Um, they were more powerful and they were more easily trained to sing the extremely demanding music that Bach and his contemporaries were writing. In Dresden, not far from Leipzig, but a world away culturally, two or three women were employed in the choir and may have performed in the chapel with the men. We just don't know. That lovely music you heard um, briefly uh, at the start uh, just now um, is Bach's uh, solo soprano cantata, Jahrzehnt Gott in Allen Landen. Uh, which is a, a very virtuosic work for soprano. Um, and it may possibly have been written for one of those female sopranos in Dresden. It could have been written for Castrato, or some people even think that there was a boy in Leipzig who was that good. However, uh, Hanukkah is bent upon adding value to his decision to use an all-male cohort of soloists and chorus in this same uh, um, line, set of liner notes. And he writes, a 13-year-old boy cannot compete with the musical knowledge of an experienced woman singer. He will approach his task with a much more natural, naive attitude. Given the appropriate talent and guidance, boys are fully capable of understanding this music and performing it with the utmost dedication. Too much so-called expression, can, as can so easily arise with operatically trained women singers, spoiling the balanced concerted performance with the solo instruments need never be feared. The special timbre of boys' voices just cannot be replaced. And here, here we have it. 
Harmoncore, brilliant, honest, unaware perhaps of the implications of what he is saying in these few words, encapsulates what I consider to be, on the one hand, the unthinking misogyny of some period performance, which has lasted up to the present day, and on the other, the 20th century disdain for expression. I'll just start briefly with the second of these points, um, expression, the biggest upheaval in musical performance practice, perhaps the biggest upheaval ever, how will we ever know, appears to have started around the time of the First World War and continues to affect performances now. It is epitomized by the great Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini, who professed to communicate the score just as it was, without romantic distortions. In this spirit, he maintained a steadier pulse through a complex movement, um, um, rather, unlike his uh, predecessors. And Igor Stravinsky, as Taruskin persuasively reminds us, produced an influential polemic that dismissed the power of music to express anything other than the notes. Hanumkor's desire to let the music off the expressive hook um, has everything to do with 20th century aesthetics and nothing to do with Baroque music, which greatly valued expression. If you sometimes rebel against the seemingly rather empty proficiency of a historically informed performance, don't blame Bach or Handel. I'll return to expression uh, before I close, but I want to turn now to Hanenkor's mistrust of operatically trained women. Given the perils of using such creatures, he could easily have chosen a female specialist in oratorio, I suppose, who perhaps would not be so annoyingly expressive. But it seems that an operatic background did not persuade, dissuade him from employing Kurt Equilutz, um, for the important role of the evangelist in the St. John Passion. Uh, he was a member of the Wiener Staatsoper, the Vienna State Opera, from 1957 to 1983. He was an operatic singer. Would Bach have made this distinction that Harlenkor seems to make between singers for opera and the church? Bach did not write an opera, but his music reflects operatic styles of the day. And he used the same music in secular and sacred compositions, often to an extent that has excited disapproval from more puritanical critics. As for Handel, he employed the best singers of the day for his opera and oratorios, making no distinction in terms of vocal character. I've already noted Dresden during Bach's time, where the court used mostly the same singers in the chapel. Which leads me to the English Cathedral and College Choir, uh, most famously represented by the all-male choir of King's College, Cambridge, uh, which has been lurking in the background of period performance for many years. The purity of the soprano line produced by boys and the similar neutrality of the male alto line, um, which with men, singing usually, the men singing mostly falsetto, have represented uh, an ideal. A famous historically informed performance messiah has the all-male choir of Christchurch, Oxford, and a group of soloists headed by the sopranos, Judith Nelson and Emma Kirkby. Uh, listening to these two female sopranos, it's easy, easy to understand their appeal for hip. They're almost boy-like in their purity and restrained vibrato. They represented a style of singing in period performance that arguably defeminized the received female singing voice and conformed to an androgynous ideal. 
In this recording, as well as many others, the self-evident problem of casting boys in solo roles led the historical performance movement to the employment of women sopranos. Uh, so they're sort of um, almost going back to a process that started in the 18th century. Uh, this is extended to, to um, choirs as well, where women sopranos become um, normal because all male choirs are problematic, don't have the, the sustaining power, don't have, not so easy to train, the boys' voices uh, break at quite a young age, so you're constantly having new boys coming on stream and so on, a lot of problems associated with it. The historically informed choirs, however, um, have a, a cultivated a sort of boyish soprano sound through suppressing uh, the, the vibrato. I was talking to a soprano in one of the London choirs recently, and she was telling me that the, the choral conductors frequently tell them to to poise, to go through poise. He's constantly trying to get this uh, sound uh, of pure sound from the sopranos and, and, and for them to, to suppress their natural uh, vibrato and warmth of sound. Hogwood chose um, an all-male choir, the one at Christchurch, because he thought he was doing what Handel uh, did in Dublin, though we don't actually know if he used uh, uh, boys um, in the choir, but certainly in later performances, boys were used as were high tenors or for the counter tenor or the alto line. Uh, but he is in fact distorting the historical record right in an essential way because women always sang in the choir in the 18th century because the soloists who were in the Messiah almost invariably, uh, the high soloists were almost invariably female or, or castratos, um, they would have led the chorus. So there's always one uh, women, woman uh, singing the soprano, one woman or castrato singing the alto line, as Holman forthrightly argues in his book on, on this um, subject. Um, there's even a record of one uppity soprano in the latter part of the 18th century refusing to sing with the chorus, and she was expelled from the hall uh, for, for breaking with convention. So even if the choir was all male, there would still be a woman in a, in a very influential position. And rem remember the, the choir is not facing a conductor. So, so the leadership of the, 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 the choir is rather different in, in uh, 18th century London. Now Handel did have a choir. It's not like uh, Bach where there might only have been four people. Uh, Handel uh, in London had um, groups of singers singing the what we call the choruses. The repercussions of the attitude towards expressive female voices evinced by Hahn and Kaur helps to explain another phenomenon of the period performance movement. Directors are clearly drawn to a pure sound. Going forward to a 1983 recording of Messiah chosen at random, uh, we have Tom Copeman with the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra and a celebrated vocal group entitled The Sixteen. Here again is the influence of the all-male college choir. Uh, the 16 at, in this performance comprises uh, four female sopranos singing in a rather boyish way, and the alto line is taken entirely by men, uh, four men, that is. Um, is this authentic? Uh, Bach and Handel would have had to use uh, boys or men on the alto line. Um, 
In the latter part of the 18th century, the alto line was increasingly taken by women, as were the soprano parts. In the 19th century, choirs reflected the emancipation of women in other areas of social life, and so alto lines um, was sung by men were largely confined to the churches where women were still not admitted, or they were sung by boys. However, Copeland's alto line is taken by countertenors, which are men who mostly use a falsetto voice to produce a sound that is a little like that of women. Um, the, this presence of countertenors replicates the constitution of many English cathedral and college choirs like Kings. Uh, Simon Ravens discusses the whole phenomenon of high male singing in his book, The Supernatural Voice, A History of High Male Singing. His conclusion is unequivocally that the countertenor as a voice type encountered so often today is essentially a construction of the late 19th century and 20th century. Of course, there were falsettists in the Baroque period, but very often they were, they were tenors, high tenors, um, who had been taught to extend their upper range, sometimes referred to as the head voice using falsetto. This is a different technique. It's perhaps easier to imagine what they did in the 18th century by thinking of popular singers, perhaps Paul McCartney in the on the Revolver album, singing very sweetly and very high, uh, with a sort, sort of seamless uh, extension of the voice into the high register. Um, Raven's um, view of this is, is reinforced by the first performance of Messiah, where the solo parts were taken some solo parts were taken by members of Christ Church and St. Patrick's choirs. One of the singers sang alto. So, aha, here we are. Here we have the justification of using countertenor, but not quite, because that same singer also sang tenor. So he was, in fact, a, a high tenor. And if you look at the range of Handel's alto parts in the Messiah, you see they didn't go particularly high. They got to about B, above middle C, and they go quite low. Again, um, uh, offering evidence that, that this was a high tenor voice, not a pure falsettist. To make this a little bit less abstract, I've got a few extracts for your edification. I'm afraid they're very brief as time is limited. Uh, this is 1950, and this is the St. Thomas's Choir, and Ramin, the director, has picked out two, possibly four, it's, hard, it's a little bit hard to tell, uh, voices to sing this very famous duet. This could well be uh, the sort of sound that Bach would have had, at least it's the sort of forces he might have had in Leipzig uh, using boys for, for the duet. Now, it's very difficult to get boys sing like that. It requires immense amount of training and, and very, very tight discipline. If you listen to Hanenkohl, who used similar forces in the 60s and 70s, that doesn't sound as good a lot of the time. So not surprisingly, uh, um, alternatives were sought. Uh, and this is a traditional sort of mainstream performance that Karl Richter was a Bach specialist, so you can't 
quite equate this with sort of romantic performance traditions. Here we have uh, two women with fully trained operatic style voices. This is a, a, a historically informed performance with a soprano and a countertenor. light um, and this is the the same sound but in a chorus uh, this is a traditional choral society uh, singing messiah um, you would hear the altars by themselves at the beginning And this is that Christchurch Cathedral recording with male altos. And so we snip out the boys and we have the 16. Uh, so female sopranos and male altos. And to show there's quite some diversity, this is um, uh, uh, the Berkeley Chamber Chorus with female altos. Even the recordings preserve that sense of the orchestra at the front and the harps got very audible there and the chorus ranged behind the opposite of what Handel had. I have not ventured into a critical assessment of the voice types heard here. I'd be careful to avoid that, I think, uh, on this occasion. Given the evidence, one might expect a female alto to be in a better position to recreate the lost sound of the castrato voice, for example. Uh, castrato, uh, goes back a long way, it was, um, but in, in um, the, the relatively modern period, it was first uh, heard in, in the Vatican in the late 16th century, and the last ones uh, were heard at the beginning of the 20th century. And, and unlike a countertenor who uses the falsetto voice and only part of the vocal cord, um, a castrata uses the whole voice. And, and the, the um, development of the 
soprano boy voice is prevented by castration uh, uh, before puberty sets in. But the, the man grows to full stature, uh, but he's just missing a few um, um, uh, attributes of, of a man. But, but uh, uh, he, he has a, a boy's voice, but in a male frame. So you get this amazing, uh, what must have been an amazing uh, flexibility and power in the voice. So, so female alto uses the entire vocal cord and the sound is consequently richer in overtones and potentially more flexible. It's also much firmer in the low register. However, the development of the countertenor voice since the Second World War has clearly produced singers of qual sufficient quality and variety to attract uh, listeners. Uh, some female singers, sopranos and altos have muddied the waters by adopting a sound that is deliberately desaturated and starts to sound more like boy sopranos and countertenors. In hip choirs, female sopranos and altos are often made to cleanse their sound. And that's simply simplifying here, as boys can be made to sound very warm and they can use vibrato as well, so, so they don't have to sound quite so chaste and pure. Uh, Copeman's uh, 1983 Messiah recording is sung by a solo quartet of female soprano male alto and unremarkably, of course, uh, male tenor and bass. Handel, on the other hand, wrote his principal roles, that is for the heroes and heroines of his operas and oratorios, uh, for castratos and women, uh, with women substituting for castratos as necessary. At the first performance of the Messiah, the main alto soloist was sung by Susanna Maria Sipper. I just hear that you can see this is the cast of the first performance of his Italian opera, Julius Caesar. And you can see that the, the title role is played by an alto castrato, Cleopatra by a soprano, the brother is sung by an alto castrato, all high voices. Um, and then there's an actual woman singing Cornelia Contralto, and then the stepson is sung by a, a, a woman, uh, a soprano, and then they're just two low male voices uh, and another alto castrato. You had obviously a bit of money because castratos weren't cheap. In this uh, um, 70s performance of Julius Caesar, you can see Janet Baker, uh, bottom right, uh, singing Julius Caesar. But in this more recent Metropolitan Opera uh, performance of Julius Caesar, you can see a countertenor uh, taking the, the part of the alto castrato. Um, Maria Sibber, as I've said, um, sang at the first performance of Messiah and at subsequent performances in London. And um, the, the re response to her voice uh, was, was pretty extraordinary. I mean, Charles Burney wrote, by natural pathos and perfect conception of the words, she often penetrated the heart. Patrick Delaney may or may not have said, uh, after hearing her, woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven thee. Uh, but Thomas Sheridan certainly wrote, uh, what then must be uh, the mighty force of oratorical expression be when conveyed to the heart with all the superadded powers and charms of music, etc. They're all clearly uh, affected by the power of music to move them through this voice. Uh, which brings us back to expression. I come back to it slightly circuitously. One of the complaints about historically informed performers is that they rarely seek out the evidence of earlier performing styles embedded 
in, early, in the earliest recordings. Of course, given that the first recordings stem from the end of the 19th century and only start to be really interesting around 1902, one might ask what they have to do with the Baroque period. It is a fair question, but so often points made in the 18th century treatises seem to find a resonance in early recordings. Nobody of sane disposition would suggest that there is an unbroken tradition from Bach to 1902. But some conventions seem to have survived for a long time and are indeed encoded early in, in earlier recordings. So recordings ought to be considered if performers want to sound like um, earlier times. Recordings are very good evidence that can show you what might need to be done. Um, we have, as luck would have it, um, some recordings made in the Vatican um, at the end of the Castrato era. And um, the, the gramophone company made a series of recordings in the Vatican. And they managed to capture the last Castrato uh, who was still performing in 1902 in the Sistine Chapel and also directing the, the pontifical choir. And um, in this Mozart, very brief extract, as I know I'm reaching the end of my time, uh, this Mozart extract, um, you can hear the, a very expressive style of singing with uh, portamento, which was highly valued in the 18th century, uh, but almost completely neglected in historical forms. Portamento means carrying the one note from one to the other, sometimes involving a slide, though it possibly means something more subtle than a, a sort of glissando. Um, I can't tell you if this is what they meant in the 18th century, but it's certainly very different to what you'll hear today. the chaste androgynous sound that we associate with church music. And, and here is Marchese Moresca, I beg your pardon, uh, by himself uh, singing uh, from the, um, the, the Nicene Creed, um, very difficult document to decode, but, but um, he was a good singer and highly respected singer. So the, uh, a lot of adjustment, but this is the sound of a castrati. And so for my summing up, Taruskin and others have argued that the reason why historical informed performance doesn't engage with these recordings is because actually the movement is a manifestation of modernism. He views it as a continuation of the changes epitomized by Toscini, Toscanini already referred to. Viewed in this way, the authority apparently embedded in period performance becomes a dangerous and socially subversive force. 
It can convince the uncritical that the male conductor is sanctified by the historical record, that the expressive female voice has no place in Baroque sacred music or even Handel oratorio, that the 18th century was awash with 20th century style countertenors. It wasn't. And that the modern countertenor corresponds to and is therefore interchangeable with the alto castrato, which it most certainly isn't. One might reasonably therefore charge the hip movement with a sort of gender bias, intentional or unintentional, or at least with making performance decisions masquerading as historically informed that adversely affect the employment of female musicians, undoing decades of uh, women's progress in musical performance. With the evidence laid before you and with the flexibility already apparent in the use of female sopranos, both as soloists and choristers, the historical movement could use equal numbers of men and women. Uh, of course, there are um, obvious exceptions like this court case in Berlin, uh, where uh, the judge upheld the choir's artistic freedom uh, was decisive and that the all-male choir wouldn't be required to take girls. But in other respects, um, like this, uh, there is no such justification on artistic grounds, uh, or certainly not on historical grounds for, for this type of casting, which, which reduces uh, the number of women in the performance of solos from uh, two out of four to, to one out of four. I will conclude with a, on a happy note because um, there is diversity of, of practice and, and the Boston Baroque, which was America's first um, historically informed group, um, to a certain first professional uh, group to, to, to gain ground in America. Uh, Perlman is quite unequivocal in his justification of the various historic performance decisions they took. He writes, while Handel had only men and boys, we know that not to be true because he had at least one soprano and alto in the course. But anyway, he, he writes, he had only men and boys in the course. We include women's voices because of the greater possibilities for expression and virtuosity. It makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? Um, Perlman evidently appreciates the sound of women's voices and we should do. This is a picture of them, a little bit larger than, than they are in this recording, which is more like that. I'll just hit, let you hear a little tiny bit of it before we stop. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm just going to unshare now. Thank you very much, Dr. Trezise. I'm sure you're receiving now a virtual round of applause. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciated that talk. I told you before we went into it that this was a topic that I know really nothing about. And you said it was sort of intended for a public audience and, and pretty accessible. 
And it really was, and I uh, thank you for that because I did not, uh, I did not view this uh, sort of form of performance so in such problematic terms, uh, even though I'm so familiar with these sort of aspects of other kind of surrounding arts and it's so uh, fascinating to me. So you sort of blew my mind, in other words, that mm. something that had just sort of uh, been invisible to me was right there. And so I appreciate uh, that and thank you for that. Hmm. Because we are running short on time, I would like to encourage anybody who has any questions for you, and I know there are some sort of experts along these lines in the audience today, uh, to ask a question via the Q&A function below, or uh, you can even, if you prefer, just um, let us know and we can put you on live so you can ask your question directly. We'll give just a couple minutes for that to happen. Um, and while we do, I thought I would ask you one question about maybe terminology. Yes. I find it sort of deliciously ironic or something like that, paradoxical even, that the acronym HIP, uh, you, the word HIP meaning sort of modern and contemporary and cool, um, being used to mean historically informed performance, which, which, I would wonder if you might take that to mean traditional um, because, and that's the reason I'm asking this is because I haven't heard that term prior to your talk. And I'm wondering, and when I do my own writing about theater or things like this, I often use the term traditional to mm. mean that, but you've, you've suggested it uh, also has a sense of authenticity to it. So I wondered if you have any more thoughts on that term, what fields it's used in, um, whether it's music specific or elsewhere, and uh, sort of if that play on the word hip is something that uh, is is addressed at all in the term itself. Uh, the the um, hip is sim sim simply historic informed performance, and it, and it is well. Um, a sort of more neutral, or they thought it was a more neutral way of referring to to the practice of using original instruments and so on, and and so it, so the the term has been really used quite a lot just to distinguish that style of performance from what you hear every Friday at the concert hall or when a pianist comes to Dublin and plays Bach on the piano, for instance, which is sort of traditional performance. The area of, of, say, drama, where you might sort of encounter something like historically informed performance, maybe at the Globe in London, doing the theatre in the, the round, but I don't know how far they go, because um, Shakespeare would have used uh, boys and men for the, the female parts, and so there, there are some sort of analogies, perhaps, there. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty unusual these days, I think, to see a, a, a true period Shakespeare piece. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. But I, when I was at school, uh, just before my voice broke, I was uh, scheduled to sing in the Mikado at my school. And I, for that, I would have been put in a dress and made up. And I think my voice broke in response to that threat <laughs> because I didn't actually end up on stage in, in a, a female dress. <laughs> Well, that is very, uh, very interesting. And it, it is, uh, is the term, do you use the term traditional at all in your own kind of writing or assessment on this? 
Yeah, I use the word traditional if I'm if I'm talking about the the unreflective performance practice. In in other words, people just doing what they do without looking over their shoulder at, at historical precedents and and so on. So I would use traditional in that context. Uh, that's really helpful for me. That's kind of what I was what I what I was wondering. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a comment from Chrissy Poulter. I'm just going to read this out for the first time here. She says, a fascinating presentation, Simon. Thank the you. The sequence of three variations of the duet from Messiah really made the point so clearly and has given me the confidence to search more carefully for recordings with historically informed voices. My question, she says, is more personal. What drew you to this topic in this particular context? Yeah, I. What, what drew me to, to the topic, I have to be absolutely open and candid uh, with you, was, was a fairly strong uh, aversion to the sound of the countertenor. Uh, that I didn't particularly like the countertenor as a, as a, a vocal type. And therefore, the, the question that I wanted to answer uh, was, was to what extent it, it was historically justified in, in the, the, the music and, and I found uh, without having to go very far um, that, that it's not justified. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it's, it's achieved huge currency since the Second World War. The countertenor has really been a growth voice and so it can't be denied. But I was just trying to, to get my head around the, the um, use of the countertenor, really. Well, uh, that is uh, really nice to hear. Uh, Chrissy says, thank you, and so do I. That's a really interesting sort of journey you've taken us through this morning. It's been uh, a pleasure. It, it, for a Valentine's Day special, uh, I really appreciate <laughs> it. I think it was right on the, on the money. Uh, it was very charming to have you here. And I would like to remind everybody to join us next week at the same time and place for Dr. Blahin Duggan uh, on another presentation on music. I second that emotion, modifiers, and expressive devices in early Motown. So looking forward to seeing you all there. And thank you again, Dr. Trezais. Thanks, thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank the Hub you. is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimuriya Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.